Last year this time, I filled out my ballot in my home at my home office desk. I sealed it in an envelope provided by the Secretary of State of Georgia, took a 15-minute walk to a drop box provided by my county's Board of Election, and with that, my ballot was cast. I told family and friends this is the only way that I'm voting again. Because by voting at home, I got the opportunity to be thoughtful about the referendums on the ballot. I got the opportunity to be thoughtful about very critical and important but lower profile offices and who's running for them and who are the candidates and what do they stand for and what's their backgrounds. So I was not just a voter, I was an informed voter. Many across the country had a similar experience as evidenced by we had the largest turnout in the United States in over a century. Two-thirds of eligible Americans voted in last year's election. That's the highest turnout in terms of percentage since 1908. That's a good thing, right? Participatory democracy is a good thing, right? The voice of the people is a good thing, right? Well, apparently, to many GOP state-controlled legislatures, that wasn't a good thing. Because since January, we've seen a rash of new restrictive voting laws implemented across the country. Georgia was first, and that became the blueprint. Well, what's next? How do we understand what's going on, and what do we do about it? To help sort through this, we are excited to have Helen Butler as a guest. She's a leading advocate for voting rights and the executive director for the Coalition for the People's Agenda. I hope that you find this episode enjoyable. I hope that you are informed. And thank you for joining us. Welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. So we want to welcome Helen Butler to the Parlay in All Blue. Thank you for joining us. How are you today? Oh, great, Mark. Thank you for having me. I'm just glad to be here with you. You know, I'm glad you're here with us. I wish we were here talking about, you know, something less heavy, right? But it just seems like this, uh, the voting, voting rights, voter advocacy is nonstop and, and it's so important. We think it's important to keep it visible for our listeners and for everyone. So glad to have you. Wish we had a different topic, but it is what it is. I know. <laughs> You know, so so before we get started, because there's so much to cover, especially what's happening here in Georgia and how that seems to have become a blueprint for what's going on in in other states. Um, But just want to talk to you about how did you come to this work in terms of voter advocacy? Well, uh, I came, I guess, in the back door through my brother. Walter Butler was the state conference president of the NAACP. Uh, back in 2000, I retired from corporate America and my brother said, Oh, come on. You got some other things you need to do. We need help over here. And I go like, what will I be doing? I don't know anything about what you do. Well, I did, but I mean, you know, I wasn't deeply involved in it. So he said, Oh, you could do it. Just come on over and work with us. So I joined the NAACP as their state coordinator for Georgia for the National Voter Fund Project. Um, It was a new initiative with the NAACP where uh, they did a national program to get people civically engaged uh, to become registered voters, to get them 
engaged in the total electoral process. So I joined the NAACP Voter Fund as their state coordinator for Georgia. And so I had to learn what I was doing with laws. Uh, what did it mean to register to vote? Uh, how do I get people registered? I didn't know many community groups because I was in corporate America. So while I did community work, I wasn't uh, very expansive in terms of my work. So I got to know every uh, chapter <laughs> of the NAACP in the state. So uh, that's how I became engaged in this work. But through Walter, he was a member of the People's Agenda. Dr. Lowry had retired from SCLC, and a lot of them had him said he couldn't retire either. Uh, so they got him to organize what is known as the People's Agenda. At that time, it was Earl Shinholster, Reverend Richard Bright, Reverend James Orange, Dr. Lowry, Tyrone Brooks, Rita Samuels, and so many others that came together to make the people's agenda happen. And so it was, the concept was, it was a statewide organization that would bring organizations together, not just individuals. Most groups were individuals membership, but this was a organizational membership where we would bring our collective power together uh, to uh, change public policy and to elect people that would represent our interests. Uh, so I met Dr. Lowry and Reverend Orange through Walter in the NAACP. So when the Voter Fund project ended, I came to work. Reverend Orange said, oh, we like what you're doing. Come join the People's Agenda. And I joined the People's Agenda in 2003. And that's where I've been since then, uh, working with uh, Dr. Lowry, Reverend Orange, and all of those civil rights leaders who got us the right to vote. So it was so wonderful. And that's how I got started in this civic engagement work. Wow. And so you came to this after having already had a career. And now you really there's a book that I read recently called The Second Mountain. And it talks kind of about, about what you're you're saying is that kind of our first mountain is about sort of things and accomplishments and those things. And, and you've moved into a space of where now you're in purpose work. Really, I mean, it's, it's, I would imagine that this is in many ways a lot harder than corporate America in some ways, maybe, maybe, I don't know. uh, The lives that, well, you know, in corporate America, you know, you have a lot of people. I was the VP of human resources. And so all of it really tied in. I was one of the first 50 to attend the University of Georgia at the Hamilton and Charlene. Uh, so I went to corporate America. I was first black female, uh, corporate executive, uh, you know, became an owner of the corporation, that kind of thing. And then when I retired, now come into this space, uh, dealing with, um, you know, in corporate America, I dealt with providing opportunities for black people to, to climb the corporate ladder. Yeah. I was a conduit for getting people in that space. So it sort of ties in, but I didn't make that connection then because I was just about me doing my career, making sure I, uh, you know, climbed the ladder, did what I needed to do. And then after that, my brother said, well, come on, do this. And it really ties in because public policy impacts you, whether you're in corporate America or whether you're just an everyday citizen. 
Uh, so it impacts you. Some law and policy that is made by an elected official impacts the way you do your business, impacts the way you live your lives. So it all connects, but I didn't see that connection sure. until I came into this space. And so, yes, it's my second mountain. And really, that. it's more meaningful because I've gotten to meet so many people across the country, not just in Georgia, but nationally. Uh, so it's just been uh, very rewarding for me uh, from that perspective. That's awesome. And, and so what's what's um, something you said there that I actually want to tra- use to transition into is that within public policy, there's so much that happens. And uh, my story and background is very similar, actually, of having been in corporate and moving into another sort of space and learning so much. It seems as if, and probably from you all with the People's Agenda and other organizations, we were on the right path that back in November and during the pandemic, uh, November of 2020, we had the largest voter turnout, high engagement uh, across the nation, high engagement uh, in the state of Georgia, which is where you uh, you and um, are primarily located. I know that you testified nationally and are connected to what's going on, but a lot, so much is happening here in Georgia that we had large participation. One party didn't like the outcome, and and we've since then had, which seems to be. I mean, when you know, when people say, you know, the big lie, it does has a very strong tie in to the lost cause of the Civil War. Like if you just keep saying it, you know, something happens or, or things begin to change. And quite frankly, in some cases, whether it's here or in Texas or the recent uh, audit in Maricopa County in Arizona, there's an audit actively happening in Wisconsin right now that uh, the challenges are being made. but but even more so, there's been a number of laws that have been enacted. And I want to put a pin right there and stop here because I want to talk a little bit about the the Georgia law. And even though that uh, I think it, think it was passed or, or came on, came live in May or June, it was this spring, in January, the January, January. Mm-hmm. January. OK. Mm-hmm. And so what is actually in the law? And, and, and I think the big headline Everyone knows that you can't pass out water or food and snacks, which I, I don't want to say that that's not like a big deal. I get it. But what else is in the law? What was the what's the point of it from your perspective? Well, Mark, you know, we couldn't uh, after 2020 with that high turnout that you talked about, that major record breaking turnout and the turnout in the runoff election where we elected two U.S. senators that would change the makeup of Congress and change, hopefully, the outcome of the country and the way it was heading, we couldn't celebrate because in January, we have our legislative session for 45 days. And, of course, it was there that they passed HB 202, uh, SB 202, rather, uh, which is a Senate bill, SB 202, that really is voter suppression, uh, Jim Crow law, 2.0. It is putting barriers in place. And yeah, people talk about the water, handing out the water. That's not the most egregious part of the bill because right. there are ways to get around that. Uh, but the most egregious part of this is, and it plays into that narrative 
that there is the lie, the election was stolen, right? There was no stolen election. There was no fraud. We had three audits in Georgia. Right. Uh, so, and all of the numbers came back in the favor of Biden. Uh, so we had the FBI and the GBI uh, looking at signature matches. They didn't find not a one that was fraudulent, uh, right. except one. There was one where the wife did her husband. And you know how wives do for the husband. Okay, honey, I I'm sorry know. for you. Uh, uh, but I mean, you know, there was no intentional fraud. And that was only one case. Out yeah. of all of the uh, millions of ba- absentee ballot applications and ballots that were cast, they found one. Um, then they had this lawsuit that, oh, absentee ballots were not folded or they were too pristine. Yeah, they're going to be pristine because when they come in, if they're torn, you have a vote review panel that makes duplicates and the duplicates are not folded. So you have to know the process of how elections work. But the most egregious part, uh, and I'm going to talk about some of the other barriers, they uh, now require a photo ID uh, mm-hmm. to even request an absentee ballot. Not to get a ballot, but to get the application. You got to provide a photo ID. Seniors don't have photo IDs, right? right? There are a lot of people, even by the Secretary of State, he said there were 90. Uh, 7% of the people had photo IDs. Well, 3% didn't. 3% of uh, 7 million voters, that's 200,000 people without an ID that would be disenfranchised. So it's things like that, reducing the number of early voting days, uh, reducing uh, when the early voting, uh, when the absentee ballots could be uh, requested. Used to be 180 days. Now you have 78 days. You have to uh, the last day you can request it is 11 days before the election, whereas it was the Friday before the election before. Uh, it's things like that. Drop boxes used to be on the outside, available 24-7. Uh, they're now inside. They can only be there doing advanced voting or early voting hours, which is nine to five. Uh, so it's things like that. If I get to a polling location and I'm not at the right one, I used to could ask for a provisional ballot any time of the day and not have to try to make it to my uh, correct precinct. And my votes would count based on what races I was entitled to vote for. Now, you if you go to a, a polling location and you're not at the right one before five, you can ask for a provisional ballot, but it's not going to count. Again, who does that? I mean, if you know the traffic in Atlanta, Georgia, to get from Gwinnett County to uh, south side of Atlanta takes three hours in five o'clock traffic. So if you went to the wrong location and you got to try to make it somewhere in traffic, you'll never get it done. Uh, So it's those kinds of things that were there. Before we had... um, Nonprofit organizations that were giving election offices uh, money to do pr- uh, protective equipment uh, to pay for um, hazard duty pay for the poll workers, things like that. Well, now this, uh, the legislature, SB 202, says they can't local boards of elections can't accept outside money. It can only go through the state or through the county commission. So that means that, you know, the Schwarzenegger Institute and Civic 
action couldn't give grants uh, to people uh, to do things like mobile voting units. Fulton County bought four mobile units where they could, uh, if a polling location uh, was not set up or they didn't have someone, they could move that uh, mobile unit to the locations. Now they can't use it at all, only if the governor declares an emergency. So it's practically useless that they can do. But the most egregious part plays into that uh, big lie narrative that, you know, it was fraud with regards to the presidential election cycle. It isn't. They now have it so that they can take over local boards of elections. The state can take over local boards of elections by performing a performance review. What does that mean? Nobody knows what it means. Nobody knows how long it will take. Uh, but it does allow people to be appointed to oversee and make the determination, right? And then if they determine that you have violated, the local board of elections have violated some law, and anybody, you can find any board of election that did something incorrect. Just look at the Secretary of State's meetings, the state election board meetings, uh, where they bring charges before the state election board. So if you make an honest mistake, you can be brought up to be taken over. So that means that they can appoint someone who's never done elections before to actually take over the election process. That person could determine who gets registered, how they get registered, when they get registered, can also decide whether to certify the results of an election or not. And what does that play into? Trump wanted Raffensperger to find him 10,000 votes and to not certify the election. So if you got these boards of elections taken over by people that don't have really an interest in it, uh, then what do you get? You get total control. So if we're in a presidential election cycle, that impacts the certification, impacts who gets the electoral votes and who gets the final outcome. So that's the most egregious part is that they can take over total control of a local board of election and Georgia has 159 of them. Okay, so they can take over total control of those elections, appoint somebody that will make a determination that may be contrary to the actual vote. Not necessarily that the vote will follow that, but that person doesn't have to satisfy or certify what that vote is. So what do you have? I mean, that's the bad part. And we're the model for the country. All of the other states are modeling Georgia. Yeah, it seemed very much like a, a cut and paste, really. Just like, what did Georgia do? And it will do that. Except for in some cases in Texas, it seemed like they took what Georgia did and said, hey, we can do even more than that. Um, you know, interestingly, yes. you said the Trump Raffensperger call, which I think was in December of, of last year of 2020. Mm-hmm. It almost seemed as if Raffensperger was saying that, and he did say, you know, can't do that. It seems like the new law was really taking that conversation and saying, well, we couldn't do it then, 
but we'll make it so that it can happen the next time. I mean, it, it's it's really insidious when you think about that. It's mm-hmm. all playing out in public, and it's, it, there there doesn't seem to be, um, at least on some in certain states, an effective pushback against it. But except though on the national level, and, and maybe you can explain some of this. What is what's happening nationally in Congress, or what can be done from that angle to to prevent some of this or to turn some of it back? Well, what can happen is there are two, three bills that really could impact all of this. Uh, one was uh, for the People's Act, which now morphed into the Freedom to Vote Act, which put standards in place. Like it says, every state must have X number of days early voting. They have election day as a holiday. It has automatic voter registration in every state would have to meet those guidelines. It would have campaign finance reform. It would have ethics reform in it. So that's one bill that would make standards applicable to all 50 states uh, and, and the territories. But what is more key is the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. That bill would put back in place the preclearance process that was taken out by the Supreme Court in 2013 when they, Justice Roberts said that, oh, there's not any discrimination anymore and the states uh, need further definition of what discrimination means, who should be included. Uh, that formula. So what that would be with preclearance before any of these changes could be implemented, it would have to go to the Justice Department for approval. So therefore, John Lewis Advancement Voting Rights Act is more critical than either of the other two bills that I'm talking about, because it would put in place preclearance. And it's definitely necessary now because we're doing redistricting. Who gets to draw the maps? Who gets to decide who's going to have what districts? And the way that our state legislature is set up is majority Republican. So they're going to skew those maps so that they have more districts than they normally would be entitled to should DOJ take a look at their maps. So it's critical that we get that preclearance process back in place. And the third bill is the D.C. statehood. A lot of people mm-hmm. saying, well, I don't live in D.C., so yeah. it doesn't matter. Yeah, it does. It gives you two more senators that could possibly skew how the majority votes in the Senate. Right now, the Build Back Better, the infrastructure bill, is being held up by senators. Yes. But if those numbers were different, and I believe based on the makeup of D.C., then you'd have uh, state sen- uh, senators, U.S. senators, that would make a difference in the outcome of how Congress would vote on legislation that's put forth. So D.C. statehood is critical from that perspective. So all three are necessary, but critical is the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. Yeah, that preclearance, I, I think, is is not talked about enough, and um, and I'm glad you brought in D.C. statehood because that that seems to have it was it was definitely forefront during the election, and then sort of maybe shortly after the inauguration, but it got kind of dropped off. Uh, but it's so important mm-hmm. because I will tell you, 
and maybe this is just just me, but when I see the combination of things that are happening with the voting and then even some of the things we won't go into it here as it relates to uh, what can or cannot be taught in the classroom, it's kind of like uh, establishing kind of minority rule. Like, you know, in, in the mm-hmm. sense of if you look at what's happening in the trends in the sentence and in the census or what have you. It's, it's really, um, putting kind of, a, a glue around, uh, minority rulers. Certainly it's something that's not representative of the people in the population in the various states. I want to ask you though. So to that end, even before DC statehood, there was so much put into nationally, so much in terms of money, in terms of promotion, in terms of energy was, uh, around um, the Georgia Senate runoff. And I am somebody that I don't watch a lot of, um, a lot of television, but, um, we visited, um, my, my mother-in-law and she had TV on. And I swear to you, every commercial was, uh, and it was Republican and Democrat was a senatorial mm-hmm. campaign commercial. Mm-hmm. I have to sit back and just say for a minute, and especially because I have uh, young children and so I'm around young people and, you know, vote, vote, vote. And they 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 they're all mm-hmm. in. But, you know, for some of the things, George Floyd policing, uh, you mentioned the infrastructure bill. The John Lewis um, Act was talked about during the election and just how important Georgia was to being able to do things nationally. And I remember. When the SB 202, the Georgia voting package, President Biden said that this is this makes Jim Crow looks like Jim Eagle and that I will do everything in my power to fight this. Has the administration done everything in its power to fight this at this point? Let me say this to my benefit. I would say no. It needs to be number one Mm -hmm. uh, because. Without that, uh, we won't get anything passed. And if you're looking at 2022 with the redistricting, there's a possibility that we have even less input uh, based on the redistricting. And so to me, it's critical that he, I know we met with um, Vice President Harris. I know it's top on her list, but they have not to me done enough to come out and say, Look, Congress, do away with this filibuster rule that is preventing things from passing. The House has passed great legislation, but it's held up in the Senate based on some stupid rule that is not a part of the Constitution. That is just some process that they agreed upon. Well, for me, if Representative Clyburn gave them the first bite at it, Do away with it when it does has to do with constitutional issues and the budget. Mm -hmm. Fine. Do away with the filibuster. For everything else, you can put it in place. But if it's a constitutional issue like voting, you need to do away with that filibuster. The president needs to be out here talking about doing away with the filibuster. He needs to have them in his office every day. Saying, get rid of that filibuster. We're going to do things to support the people. You can't have an infrastructure bill 
You can't have the Build Back Better bill because of this stupid filibuster. So we've got to have it so that a majority of the Congress can vote and not require a supermajority of the Congress, of the Senate rather, to vote. So we've got to have this passed. And he needs to do more to talk about now is the time to get rid of the filibuster. And here's why. And here's what it should be. He should define why it should be gotten rid of. Because I know he believes in process. Yep. Because he was a longstanding member. But process means nothing when people are suffering. Uh, people are not getting the bills that they want. And the country wants it. I mean, if you look at the polling data, Republicans want it. Right. Not just Democrats. Everyone wants it. So do away with the filibuster and he needs to put more emphasis on that, just like he's putting emphasis on the infrastructure bill. Yeah, no, you know, so I think that's really important. And I understand the president, uh, President Biden, somebody in the process. He's a part of the institution, comes out of the Senate, and he very much believes in reaching across the aisle and what have you. But one of the things about process is you have to assume that both sides have the same agenda. Or the same goal. And and that's not the case. The other thing is that I'll say is that the longer we wait, there are things happening now. Like in Georgia, we are beginning sort of municipal elections. But also just to go back to the to the bill, there are things happening in terms of local elections. And even you were involved in being removed from the Morgan County Board of Elections. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think it's important that people understand that what was put in place, what was passed by the legislature in January, it's already playing Mm -hmm. out. Talk a little bit about that. Yes, I belong to the Morgan County Board of Elections since 2010. Uh, So I was just removed in 2021, June 2021. And I was removed simply because my Republican-controlled county uh, wanted to continue the narrative, didn't want or didn't like that we as Democrats on that board uh, were wanting things like uh, drop boxes <laughs> in COVID, you know, that I refused to go to a board of election meeting while COVID was there and none of the people were wearing masks. They weren't required to wear masks. Uh, it was rampant in the community. People were dying. And I said, as long as the state election board is having their meeting via Zoom, there is no reason my county can't have Zoom. We wanted diverse workers, poll workers, to represent the county. We had a lot of poll workers with that were predominantly old white women. Well, uh, you know, a third of the county is black. So why can't we have black poll workers? Secondly, a large part of the young people, our new equipment, the equipment we had was all iPad. I mean, you ch- get checked in on the iPad. Well, old people like me don't know how to use technology, but young people can do it just like that. The new machines, voting machines, they're all technologically advanced, more so than any of the things that we as older people would know how to do. We got scanners. We got uh, copiers that, you know, that these scanners to scan your ballot. 
And if they're not scanned right, if you don't load them right, old people like me don't know how to fix them, but the young people do. So we should have diverse workers in our workforce. That's what we were advocating for. We were advocating for more access, not closing polling locations. They wanted to go. We already went from 11 to seven. They want to go from seven to five. We were opposed to that. So there were things that they didn't want us to do. So they decided they're going to introduce local legislation. And that's different from SB 202 because local legislation, there were 10 counties this past session that were impacted by that. So if you got 10 small counties, like my county was a small county. We only have 15,000 people. Okay. But to get big counties like Fulton, which they're trying to take over now with a million people registered voters. Well, for those, the legislature can take those over. So put those in conjunction with the local legislation. You can change as many counties as you want. You can change four big ones, but you can change as many little ones using the local legislation in conjunction. So the local changed the makeup of the board too, because then the county commission gets to decide who gets appointed to the board. And of course, them being majority Republican, they are going to appoint people in their ideology. And so we had 10 of those already. And now they're trying to take over Fulton. Yeah. And so, so before I ask the question, just to, to give the audience, um, just a, a perspective on, so you were on the county election boards in Morgan County since 2010. How did you, how, how did you get on the board of elections? And then who took you off? How did that happen? I, I just want to give people a sense of the sort of the, the process behind it. The original makeup of the board was that the legislation that put it into effect said that the two political parties, the Republicans and the Democrat, would have two appointees to the board and the county commission would have only one appointee to the board. So there are five of us, two Democrats, two Republicans, and one appointed by the county commission, which tend to be Republican. Um, So, but anyway... To make sure that we were not having a stronger voice and that we were not holding up the vote, uh, the, because one of the chairs that was appointed by the county commission went along with me and my Democrat, fellow Democrat on the board and we got drop boxes. Uh-huh. So they got rid of him as their appointee and put another appointee in. Now watch how it works. So then it wasn't like three to two. It became three to two the other way instead of three, two doing what was right to three, two doing ideology. So we control who gets registered. We control who gets the absentee ballots. We control who gets to count the ballots. We get to certify the elections. So if you have someone that's going to do the bidding of one party, versus having other people there who are going to speak out against it, what do you get? You get total control again. And that's what they were doing, getting total control by making the change to the board. In one of the counties in Spalding County, they not only changed the makeup of the board, but they changed the Black elected supervisor of election. She didn't live in Spalding because it never was a requirement 
to be as election supervisor that you had to live in the county. But they said you had to live in the county. Now, granted, there's Troop County where the election supervisor lives in Alabama. He lives in another state, but they didn't change him out, but they yeah. changed her out. Again, yeah. it's picking and choosing to give you the best dynamics for control. Yeah, it, it's it's very arbitrary. And by even one of the things within the um, the the omnibus bill, the uh, SB 202, mm-hmm. is by taking uh, the supervision away from the secretary of state and you put it into the legislature and what have you, it takes away accountability in the path to even challenge these things. One of the other things that I, that I thought is that kind of ties into this in a weird way to me is that while we're starting here, um, in Glen County in Brunswick, the trial for the killing of uh, Ahmaud Arbery, mm-hmm. the sort of the citizen's arrest was, you know, repealed and, and, uh, right. and this, and that was taken away. But as a part of this voting, one of the things that sticks out to me is that any citizen can challenge the eligibility of voter eligibility. It's, so it's kind of like injecting that black codes, reconstruction, Jim Crow citizens arrest into voting, you know, and, and to be honest with you, the Republican anti-abortion Bill in uh, Texas has that same sort of pitting citizens mm-hmm. against citizens kind of thing and really obfuscating where the accountability lies. So you don't have a way to challenge some of these things. It's very um, it's not just barriers to voting. It's like a mm-hmm. web of things and you it can is. just really to sort through it. But but to that, so we know there's a lot of work that needs to be done nationally or what have you, and, and we still have to continue to vote and to be mm-hmm. active. I do want to give you a, an opportunity because I think it's important that we still have to vote. And I've heard you say, and I may get this wrong and you could correct, you're working on something about vote ready or get ready. Can you talk more about what's happening? How do we get people still active and engaged in voting? Well, numbers matter. As as the 2020 and 2021 said that, people stood in line for 14 hours to vote. <laughs> you know, yeah. despite rain, despite the cold, despite barriers, not enough poll workers, not enough machines, machines breaking down, no matter what, they stood in line and they made a difference. And it's critical that we continued that path. And to me, uh, what it means for us is that we've got to continue to get around any barrier that is there. As I said, you know, the thing about us not being able to pass out water, uh, we can get around that barrier because the law says that as long as I'm beyond 150 feet of the entrance to the polling location or I'm 25 feet uh, beyond the last voter in line beyond the 150 feet, I'm okay. I can pass it out as long as I give it to everybody. I don't make it a condition for voting. So uh, on their way to the poll, I can give out, you know, water. I can give out snacks. Hey, come on by. Here's my table. Get you some snacks while you stand or whatever you got to do. Wherever you're going, we don't care. Just come pick it up. So that's a way around it. So what I wanted to do is have people to be get vote ready. So get vote ready means 
that we want you to know everything there is about the process. And we're putting together what we call a green book. The green book, you know, in the civil rights days, yeah. the green book told you where to stay, where to yeah. get your hair done, you know, if you were traveling. Well, this is to say, no matter where you're in the state, here's how you're going to vote. We want to tell you where you go get a free photo ID at driver services. Uh, we're going to tell you where your boards of election offices are. We want to tell you where your polling locations are. We want to tell you how to um, submit the new absentee ballot application. Here's what it looks like. Here's how you do it. Here's what the form looks like. Hey, here's step one, step two, step three. We want to walk you through that. We want to publish a book that gives it to voters that they can keep with them. Uh, and we'll update it because we know they're going to change it. Sure. Some sure. of the laws, the more we do, the more they're going to change, but we're going to stay abreast of this. We want to, you to know which IDs are valid, which ones, even in Georgia, most people don't know if you got an expired Georgia driver's license, you can use that for identification purposes. You can't use any other state uh, driver's license uh, that's expired, but you can for Georgia. So it's things like that, the little nuances that people don't know. Uh, we want to give them, you know, how do I find out who's running for office? There's a new requirement in SB 202 that they have to publish who has voted absentee already, who got it, when they got it, whether it was accepted or whether it was rejected and the reason for rejection. We want to teach people how to go look for that. And if you don't have that, here's a toll-free number to call and we'll get that information for you. You need a ride to the poll. Here's the website to sign up for it. Here's a, a toll-free number. If you encounter problems at the polling location, here's our election protection number, 866-OUR-VOTE. Lawyers are available. We want people to know that you have resources that you can call upon that you don't just have to accept anything. Challenges. If people are challenging your right to vote, here's the process. They must do it this way. It can't be just they're saying, I'm challenging you. They must put it in writing. It, a, a meeting has to be scheduled. A hearing has to be scheduled for you. So we want people to know the process. We're going to have copies of the voting machine in there. Here's how you stick the card in the machine, right? Here's what your ballot will look, print out look like. Here's the scanner. Here's where you scan it in. And this is what you will now have voted. Here's what the bin looks like that your, your ballot drops in. So we want people to know that process. Uh, we want them to know what, how do you cast a provisional ballot now? What does that mean? What is a provisional ballot? A lot of people don't even know what we mean. Right. Uh, we say advanced voting. We say early voting. So a lot of people don't know what that means. In Georgia, we had a million people that were registered to vote in 2021, but didn't make it to the polls. Just wow. think a million black people yes. alone yeah. who registered to vote, but didn't make it to the polling location. Yeah. Think about that's, it. We could have that's, that's a huge number of so many races. 
Yeah, now that that that's that's a game changing number. Now that that get vote ready in this, I like that idea. I love the the tie in with the green book. Is this something that is being worked on, or it's available now? It's being worked on. We weren't going to release it for the uh, municipals, but what we decided was if we know every little trick that they're going to pull, then we could. The more we know, the better we are. Uh, so we're going to introduce a release it right after the election, starting for 2022. Got it. Because we got all of our statewide offices. We got judges. We got district attorneys, uh, you know, constitutional officers. We want people to be ready for those races. Awesome. So I will make sure that we include the address to the the website for the People's Agenda so people can check there and know how to access those resources. To transition into something else, and it's something I'm really proud of as a Georgia resident, is that when you look at what's happening nationally in terms of uh, what I would call a revitalization of, of civil rights and human rights or what have you, you have you with the People's Agenda, Latosha Brown uh, with um, Black Voters Matter, and of course, Stacey Abrams with Fair Fight. What is going on? What do we, what do we need to do for black women in Georgia? And and uh, for, first off, a big thank you for what you all are doing. But but what what do you think has led to such an empowerment of women, and particularly black women, around this this issue? What's what's behind it, or what what do we need to know about that? Well, black women have always been doing working behind the scenes. I think we stepped out of the shadows. And came to the light this time because we said we can no longer just stay in the background. We have to come forward. And so you have all these dynamic women like Stacey Abrams, like Latasha Brown, Inse Ufa, Tamika Atkins, Anna Dennis, I mean, Deborah Scott, Felicia Davis, all these women that are on the ground. I have seven offices across Georgia and most of my offices are led by black women. I have two that are led by black men, but most of them are by black women. Yeah. I have a young person there, Pat Hector, that works with black youth folk that are doing things to galvanize young people. They they did it in the streets and now they're turning it over to the uh, government to do it. And we need people to run for office too. So, But what you find is black women have said, we've got to step out of the shadows to really be at the forefront because it's critical. Democracy is at stake. It's not just our voting rights, but it's democracy is at stake. And that means a way of life for everybody. I don't care who you are. Uh, so we've always worked in coalition with Asians, the Latinx community, African diaspora, the Caribbean. Uh, so we all pull together. And what we're saying is, that we have really got to help people understand because COVID helped us understand the connection between that policy and how our lives are impacted. George Floyd bill won't get passed because we got elected officials who are holding us up. Yeah. Well, if we want to change that, we got to change the players. Um, I was in HR in my corporate days. So in corporate days, you know, you train people, you coach them along, you try to get them to do right. And if they do right, well and good to push them on to new careers. But if they don't, what do you do? Got to go. Coach them again. 
And it's still, if they don't do it, then what you got to do? Fire. Yeah. Somebody used the word, you're fired. Well, we got to use that term, you're fired. (laughs) And get new ones. Now we need some, we need, we, we, hey, we've got to stay engaged. I want to encourage everybody. Listen, it's always been a fight and it is a fight, but listen, we got to stay engaged. So Helen, thank you so much again for, for joining us. I really appreciate it. A couple of questions here because the, the parlay in all blue has four pillars. There's leadership of which you're doing, uh, with the people's agenda and just through your activism. History, culture, and living well. One of the questions we always end with or get close to ending with is, what does it mean to live well? What does it mean to live well for me means that I can enjoy life the way I want to enjoy it with my family and that we can enjoy all the benefits that we're entitled to. So that's what living well means to me. I'm in good health. I have access to good health. I can, you know, have uh, opportunities that I want and not be hindered by any barriers. So that's to me living well. I like that. I like that. All right. And one one light question for you. And you have uh, heavy work, but sort of to <laughs> for you, if you as a leader or just as a person doing work, if you travel for me, at least is a way to get away from things as a traveler. Are you more of a beach vacation, a touristy, or just going someplace and and eating and maybe having a beverage, I don't know, or what have you? What's a good vacation (laughs) for you or what's a good travel experience for you? A good travel experience for me is going somewhere I like to be. I'm not a beachy person. Okay. You know, that's fine for people who like the beach. I can take it, but I like, you know, sightseeing. But I also like a place where I can relax and yeah. just do whatever I want to that particular day to be adventuresome, find something different, along with relaxing at night with a nice wine. <laughs> I heard that. I heard that. Me too. Me too. A nice wine. And, and hey, and listen, with some of this uh, election stuff, I, I've been switching the whiskey to get through some of these things. But that'll be another show for a whole nother time. We want to thank Helen Butler with the Coalition for the People's Agenda. Thank you so much for the work that you do, and thank you for joining us. Uh, stick around for as we exit on the Parlay in Blue, uh, the Parlay in All Blue. I have to know the name of my own show with Mark Dawson. We thank you all. Appreciate it. And uh, thanks, Helen. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Well, that's episode one. Thanks again to Helen Butler and the Coalition for the People's Agenda. You can find them at thepeoplesagenda.org. Next week, join us. We'll have Lanier Richardson for a discussion on urban development, black entrepreneurship, and access to capital and building out our cities. It's an interesting discussion. You don't want to miss it. Thank you to DJ Marky G for allowing us to use your music. We appreciate you, brother. Find him on iTunes and Spotify. Valerie at the Podcast Planners, we appreciate you so much for getting us launched. Jasmine with Creative Gym Media is the show's manager and producer. Thank you for getting us this far. Courtney Daniel is our associate producer. Thank you, Courtney. Thank you to my wife, Tara, and my family, Miles, Maya, and Malcolm. Appreciate you all so much. Love you. If you have information on show topics or you have feedback or you have ideas on guests, hit us at 
info at the parlay in all blue.com. That's info at the parlay in all blue.com. Drop us an email there. You can find us on social platforms Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, at the parlay in all blue. We're one of one. You should be able to find us there. Thanks for tuning in. Check us out next week. I'm out. Peace.